Welcome to episode 35 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. You know, there's that old aphorism that the definition of uh, madness is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different response. Actually, it's a definition of personality disorder. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Professor Andrew Channon. Professor Channon is a psychiatrist and he's the head of personality disorder research and a director of clinical programs and services at Origin, as well as a professorial fellow at the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. He is a board director of NEA BPD Australia and a past president of the International Society for the Study of Personality Disorders. In today's conversation, you'll hear Professor Channon referring to trays. In episode 27 of this podcast, Professor Steve Allen introduces some of these ideas, and this episode may be a good one to listen to, as well as this episode. Character traits are basically the same thing as traits, so things like openness, extroversion, agreeableness, for example. Also, you may want to check out episode 13 with Dr. Yvette Vardy, where we take our first deep dive into the world of borderline personality disorders. Today's podcast is brought to you by talklink.com.au a modern and approachable mental health directory helping Australians connect with the right mental health practitioner. All of the practitioners, so that psychologists, psychotherapists and counsellors, are available to see clients straight away, so no waiting list. They're all independent, licensed and insured and available for online or in-person consultations. The great thing about TalkLink is that you can see a short video of the therapist to get to know them a little, check out their training and experience, as well as their pricing in a transparent way to decide if this is someone that you would like to connect with. Okay, let's dive in. So borderline personality disorder is a concept that's been around for nearly 100 years, around the late 1930s, um, and it's undergoing a bit of a change at the moment. Essentially, it originally described a group of people who have problems with functioning in their own sense of self, their identity, self-direction, uh, and also uh, problems with other people, so interpersonal relationships, and then also behavioural problems with uh, impulsive behaviour, self-harm and aggression. Uh, and it's undergone a change over the last uh, few years because actually the classification systems are moving away from these categories of diagnoses. And what we know now is that borderline personality disorder really represents the severe uh, component of personality disorder. So the really contemporary way of thinking about this is that there is a thing called personality disorder and that it's comprised of problems with self-functioning and functioning uh, in relation to other people and that at its most severe form, it looks like borderline personality disorder. So I use the term borderline and severe personality disorder interchangeably. But essentially, the core features are interpersonal, cognitive, emotional and behavioural problems that involve things like self-harm, unregulated emotions and problems with interpersonal relationships. Hmm. Okay, so there's a few points that I'm sure our listeners are curious about at this stage. What does borderline and personality disorder look like at the extreme end? Yeah, so severe personality disorder or severe borderline personality disorder involves usually very severe what's called emotion dysregulation, inability to manage one's own emotional inner life to such an extreme that it's like a roller coaster of emotions. It often involves very severe reactive aggression uh, so that people can become uh, really enraged at what other people might think are, are trivial matters. And of course, that means people with severe personality disorder are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Uh, and in fact, we've, we've published just recently that people with borderline personality disorder are more likely to both be perpetrators, but also victims of, of crime as well. Then there's also the, the identity disturbance that often the identity disturbance can be so severe, this person has no idea who they are. Uh, you know, I have a, a, a number of patients who say to me, I just, I don't even know what my favourite colour is. I don't even know what I value in life. I don't even have a sense that I'm the same person in, in different situations. And so it can be, it, it's like being, you know, a, a float on a, 
a stormy sea. They're just battered around without any sense of who they are, uh, where they're headed in life, uh, what they value, what they want, what they need. And then at the severe end, you very commonly see severe self-harm. And that self-harm involves a mixture of either suicide attempts, uh, often because life is seen as so painful that they try to end it, but also, as I said earlier, the recurrent self-harm to manage uh, either emotions that are out of control or to punish themselves or to manage what's called dissociation, that is this sense of being cut off from reality to bring them back into contact with reality. And so when I say severe self-harm, you know, at its most extreme, it can involve, I had a a patient recently who lacerated her leg uh, right down to the bone. You can uh, have people who will uh, open up wounds sometimes so deep that, you know, they can open up their abdominal cavity, those sorts of things. You know, at its most extreme end, you see really distressing, extreme self-harm. And even though they might not have been intended to kill themselves, sometimes the self-harm is so severe that that they die by misadventure. And then you also see this impulsivity in behavioural impulsivity where people will do things without thinking of the harmful consequences. So it's not just, you know, going and buying an item of clothing, you know, that you didn't really need. It's actually spending all your rent money uh, because you didn't even think ahead. It's uh, getting into a car with a stranger who you don't know who might actually uh, harm you. It's having um, sexual relationships with people that you might not have wanted to have sex with, uh, having unsafe sex repeatedly, which is very common in people with severe personality disorder. It might involve binge eating. Uh, It might involve other forms of impulsive drug use. You know, I'm going to go out tonight. I'm not going to drink tonight, but ending up getting blind drunk. It might involve impulsive acts like taking drugs that you never intended to take. So I've had patients who, you know, in in the cold, hard light of day would say, I I would, would never use heroin, but in fact, you know, impulsively end up doing so. And, and so you, you see these really extreme forms of behaviour. And then you also uh, see in severe personality disorder the severe relational disturbance that people have with other people. So they often are isolated, have very few meaningful long-term relationships. They're often alienated from their families. Uh, families have often given up on them. And they're often lonely, isolated, and uh, living, you know, unhappy lives. And it's tragic to see those kinds of um, extremes. So how would uh, someone, say, in your position, diagnose someone with uh, personality disorder or, you know, with a borderline-specific focus? Yeah. So people still use the traditional diagnostic criteria mostly. What I'm talking about is really the more cutting-edge way of thinking about it, and it will become the norm over the coming decade or so. And essentially, the diagnosis is made by trying to understand how someone usually is, not how they might be in an episode of depression or when they might have a panic attack or something like that, but actually what's their usual way of functioning. And if their usual way of functioning uh, involves problems with, you know, identity disturbance and uh, problems with interpersonal relationships, aggression, emotion dysregulation, and often self-harm, then people will diagnose borderline personality disorder. And they base that on the nine criteria that are in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. And uh, that really came in in 1980 with eight criteria, actually, and a ninth was added in 1994. And this idea that you can just check off a list of having five out of nine criteria and make a diagnosis is throughout the the DSM system. But as I said, we're moving away from that to a more dimensional, you know, spectrum of uh, personality pathology that we would, is the technical term. And that um, you you can, even if you don't meet the five out of nine criteria, which is the traditional way of making the diagnosis, 
we know from our own research and from the research of other groups uh, that you can still have significant problems, even if you have one, two, three, or four of those diagnostic criteria. So that cut point of five out of nine doesn't really describe a meaningful cut point. It simply describes a, a level of severity. And in fact, that level of severity is really continuous from one through to all nine criteria. Um, what we also know from our own work and the work of um, particularly a, a Dutch group as well, is that at the most severe end, uh, we know that having psychotic symptoms is actually an indicator of having the most severe form of borderline personality disorder. And that's really at, at the kind of cutting edge of, what, uh, of, of what's happening at the moment. We, um, uh, we've identified particularly that uh, hallucinations, auditory verbal hallucinations, so hearing voices, is an indicator of very severe uh, borderline personality disorder. And clinicians really have known this for a long time in that they, um, you, you see people with borderline personality disorder who have hallucinations in particular, but sometimes have other psychotic symptoms as well. And often they've been dismissed, but now we know actually that a bit like fever, you know, it's the most severe form. Uh, and, um, and we know that uh, uh, we should take those problems seriously. Let's start with a diagnosis that you talked about. You said in 10 years, we'll be thinking about borderline in a very different way. How do you see us speaking and speaking about personality disorders and borderline? And how do you see us uh, diagnosing it in 10 years from now? Yeah. So uh, actually, as of next year, the uh, ICD-11, the International Classification of Diseases, which is the, is the global classification system of all diseases, uh, will bring in a new way of thinking about personality disorder that really reflects uh, contemporary scientific thinking. And also in the DSM, which is also very widely used, uh, there, there is a section called Section 3, uh, which contains what's called an alternative model of personality disorder. And both of those models essentially have a series of steps. The first step is to say, does someone meet the criteria for personality disorder? That is, do they have problems with function, self and other functioning? And if they do, then you decide, is it mild, moderate or severe? And then once you've decided that, and that, that's very simple, and some, you know, in primary care and other settings like that, people might stop at that point and say, I know this person's got mild personality disorder and, you know, that's um, uh, enough what you can do as a second step, and particularly mental health clinicians would likely do, is describe the flavour of that personality disorder on a number of tray domains, so personality trays. And they include things like emotion dysregulation, obsessionality, extroversion, uh, and uh, they describe really the the flavour and the mix of, of personality styles in that personality disorder. And then the ICD has a, a third step that you can also make, which is to specify, have a borderline personality disorder specifier. And that is not such a scientific thing as much as a political compromise, really, when the, um, uh, when the classification uh, was developed. Uh, largely because in many countries, uh, actually I should correct myself, not in many countries, in a, a very small number of countries, there, are, there is good coverage, insurance coverage for people with personality disorder, and uh, particularly for borderline personality disorder. And the concern that these uh, people had was uh, that the insurance companies would no longer cover them. Uh, and so this borderline specifier was included so to make sure that there continued to be insurance coverage. That was largely the reason it was brought in. Uh, I think also the other reason is to provide some continuity between the research that's been done, particularly since 1980, when, the, when borderline personality disorder really came into being uh, in the DSM-3, to provide continuity of that research uh, this specifier was introduced. Right. That's super interesting. And I think we've heard that from several professionals. I want to go to another thing that you said. You talked about personality disorders then existing in the spectrum. 
and that at the severe end, it can get really bad. And I definitely want to ask you some questions about the severe end, but let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Yeah. What does, you know, does that mean that there are all these people right now who have elements or components of personality disorders that are not diagnosed, but come up from time to time? Like, how does that work? And is that an issue? And does it even matter? Yeah, it does. It's a really important question. And it's one, I think, that causes a lot of consternation among both clinicians and the public. So we don't think of personality disorders plural. There is really just one thing, personality disorder. And at its milder end, it blends into normality. You know, um, one person's personality pathology is another person's colourful individual, you know. So, So we all have a set of characteristics that make us who we are. And that set of characteristics is our personality. And if those set, that set of characteristics means that we um, run into difficulties in relationships with other people, or uh, if we run into problems with our own self-direction, identity, goals in life, then we think of that as problematic. Uh, at what point it becomes pathological or abnormal or a, an, a disorder is, is hotly debated. If you look across the world, the prevalence of personality disorder, that is in the old thinking, you know, categorically defined personality disorder is close to 10% in high income countries. Um, It's more like 7.5% in low income countries. Now, that means, you know, lots of people with personality disorder. And that covers the whole spectrum of severity, but it doesn't even cover the, you know, mild to moderate. We all have characteristics that cause us problems. You know, if if these characteristics are inflexible or they're exhibited in situations that don't call for them, then that's what makes it problematic. So I'll give you an example. If somebody is loud and demonstrative, um, that can be a perfectly normal thing. However, if they're loud and demonstrative in solemn settings in other situations that don't call for it, then people would say that person's a little bit unusual. You know, they'd say this person's a bit bit uh, um, uh, insensitive to the, you know, the um, uh, local context. And, you know, if somebody is displaying that, and that's really the only way that they know how to interact with people, then you might say they have, you know, mild personality disorder. Um, Another characteristic that often people identify with is uh, uh, obsessionality. So people who are scrupulous, hyper-organised, neat, uh, they're often rigid and inflexible. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But if it actually is so severe that it interferes with your ability to finish anything. If you spend all your time organizing your desk, but never doing the job, then again, that's an example of an abnormal personality trait that uh, that might cause problems. Now it's not gonna cause you necessarily the kind of severe problems that you get with borderline personality disorder, but it, it, lots of people run into problems because they are so obsessional that they can never finish tasks and, and uh, you know, their workmates or their family or other friends get cross with them because they never actually deliver on what they're meant to. So, you know, that's the kind of milder end where, you know, we all have abnormal personality characteristics and there's nothing uh, particularly severe or dramatic about that. But, you know, they do cause us problems in life. You know, there's that old aphorism that, the definition of uh, madness is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different response. Actually, it's a definition of personality disorder that, you know, we keep doing the same thing over and over again, even in the face of it not delivering what we hoped it might deliver, you know, for our lives. And so we end up running into the same problems over and over again because essentially that they're the cards that we have in our hand to play and, and we keep playing them, even if the situation doesn't call for that card. So, so that's interesting. Um, it's almost as if someone's stuck on repeat and they exhibit the same sorts of characteristic behaviors again and again. So that actually speaks to the idea of being able to change or improve. 
some professionals have, have been quite skeptical of the overall ability to change someone with personality disorder. What are your thoughts on being able to change someone that's already fairly late on in that journey? And I want to come back to the earlier side of the journey in a moment, but someone who's quite severe and late on. Well, I, I want to state categorically up front that treatment works. Treatment is effective. Uh, and so al although there might be scepticism about whether core personality traits are changing, treatment for personality disorder can, at the very least, help people to kind of uh, um, have a wider repertoire of, of um, responses to problems in life. Uh, and so you can help people with personality disorder to improve their lives. And, you know, I wouldn't turn up for work every day if I didn't believe that, uh, that we could change um, uh, people through the work that we do. There is some debate about whether personality, those traits that underlie personality disorder, or in fact that self and other dysfunction, how much that can, um, at its fundamental level, change. And I think to some extent, this is, it's not the most important argument. The most important argument is, can we help people to make a difference to their lives and to be less distressed and traumatised, to cause less kind of angst in, in the people around them, uh, and to live more fulfilling lives that, that they value and they want to live. And so if I think, you know, if we can achieve that, then I think that we are, um, you know, we're doing well. Whether people can change, I think the important thing here is that it, it's tied up also with the natural progression of personality across the lifespan. So personality does change across the lifespan. We used to think of personality as unchangeable. You know, if you think of the Jesuits, you know, who said, give me the boy at seven and I'll show you the man. Actually, that's not quite true. And while you can look back and see the roots of somebody's personality right back to childhood, you can, you can uh, see individual differences between children and uh, there is some continuity of that into adulthood uh, and, and throughout the lifespan. What we know is that personality never stops changing. And there's a very nice description, I think, that personality change slows. It becomes more viscous as we go through life, but it never stops flowing. And so people, people's personalities change across the life course. What changes is the, is the quantum of that trait. What doesn't change too much is actually where you are in the kind of rank order of, uh, of that trait. So, for example, the most anxious person at, in, in kindergarten will probably still be the most anxious person in adulthood. The most antisocial person, you know, in teenage years will probably be, you know, at the top of the queue in, in their adulthood. But the amount of those traits uh, tends to, uh, of the problematic traits, tends to get less. And the amount of more pro-social and self-regulatory traits tends to increase. So we become more emotionally regulated and we become less impulsive as we get older uh, and we become more socially oriented and collaborative you know so these things are predictable changes you know among groups of of people and then uh, the other interesting thing i think is that we often think of childhood and adolescence as you know being a time of personality change and there used to be a, a myth that you couldn't diagnose personality disorder in people under the age of 18 because their personalities were still changing. But actually, we know that there's more change between the age of 20 and 40 than there is in your teenage years in your personality. The, the quantum of change is more in those, in those two decades than there, it is in your second decade of life. Really? Yeah, is kind of not what we thought it was. Uh, and it's very interesting. And this has really been important research over the last two decades um, that is based on now a very substantial body of research um, in normal personality. Yeah. 
Uh, that is surprising to me. Um, Andrew, I, I kind of want to go back just to clarify two points. I feel like there may be some listeners that that aren't quite um, that that aren't quite familiar with some of the concepts um, that we've we've explored here, and I feel like it's really important to this conversation. So, if you wouldn't mind, that so the first point is when we talk about personality disorders or personality disorder, traditionally we talk about a whole suite, cluster A, B, and C. And colloquially, we refer to that as the mad, bad, and the sad. I hope no one takes offense to that, but it always helps me to remember it. Just maybe as a quick aside, could you just touch on what some of those clusters might look like? Because when you talk about personality disorder now, it encompasses everything from psychopathy through to OCD, through to borderline, through to narcissism. Can you just go through what that spectrum is so we know how broad that net is? Yep. So, so just a couple of, uh, just one correction that OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, is not a personality disorder. And in fact, in the ICD 11, uh, they use a very old term that they brought back called anencastia uh, to describe obsessionality as a tray. And they deliberately chose that word because there used to be this thing called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. And they wanted to cut the kind of association between the two. So I just wanted to be clear that. OCD is not a personality disorder, but you're right, psychopathy is. I think what what you're referring to is the traditional classification. And the reason I guess I moved straight into into this new uh, classification is because actually for decades, everybody's known that that original classification is wrong. It was made up by a bunch of people sitting around a table in the late 1970s. And in fact, I know know, a number of those people who were on that committee, they were very eminent researchers and clinicians in the field, but they essentially made it up from clinical experience. And what they came up with was this idea that there were these three clusters of personality pathology. As you say, you know, this idea of mad, bad and sad, I I don't like using it. Uh, I think it actually adds to the stigma of uh, toward people with personality disorder. Um, but the reason that the, the, what was cluster A was called MAD was because, because it included um, people with schizotypal, schizoid and paranoid personality disorders. And all of them are really uh, forms of, there's an argument about whether schizotypal personality disorder is actually a kind of attenuated form of a, of a psychotic disorder, of schizophrenia. And they all shared in common, though, that they, had a, there, was, there were either temporary or low-level losses of reality testing, you know, that people were overly suspicious, that they were detached uh, from other people. And, uh, and so that's how that cluster came back because people thought they shared a lot in common. And then there was the what was called the bad. And, again, this is the particularly stigmatised group, you know, which was antisocial and histrionic and borderline and narcissistic personality disorders, and those were the ones that were more demonstrative, involved more transgressions of other people's rights. So, you know, antisocial personality disorder, you know, involves outright criminality and exploitation of other people. Narcissism in, it, it also involves exploitation and a kind of self-centeredness. And then there was the so-called sad group, you know, which was the avoidant, dependent and and what was called obsessive compulsive personality disorder. Essentially, they're the kind of anxious people who avoid mixing with other people, would really like to have friends, but you know, don't know how to do it and feel too anxious to do it, often very fearful of criticism by others. And it turns out, though, that when you examine these things scientifically, they don't stack up at all as three clusters. Uh, if anything, they stack up as four clusters, that obsessive compulsive comes out on its own. And actually those four clusters really represent four of the five personality trade domains that underlie these personality disorders. Um, So, you know, there's emotion dysregulation, detachment, anencastia or obsessionality, dissociality, uh, which is essentially antisocial behaviour. And a, a term that's, you know, sometimes called schizotypy at other times is called peculiarity that essentially people who often have cognitive and perceptual distortions lose touch with reality to some extent and so 
I guess, you know, in this discussion, it, it probably reflects that in my own work, we've moved well away from, from that many years ago. You'll find clinicians who still use it. Uh, in fact, the majority of clinicians still use it. Uh, what you're saying, that thinking still pervades clinical thinking and even teaching still. And partly it pervades teaching still because the DSM-5, the most recent edition uh, that came out in 2013, had this alternative model, but through a whole lot of political reasons, largely it didn't make the main section of the manual. And at the very last minute, uh, they voted not to include it and just left the DSM-4 section as it was and carried it on. Now that the DSM-4 came out in 1994, as I recall, and already then there was some consternation about whether it was accurate. So we're now stuck in 2021 with a classification system that was already out of date even when it came out. And it's really hampered, uh, I think, progress in the field because, you know, the kind of conversation we're having is not one that would be commonly had with, among clinicians. And it, it's going to take quite a lot of education and work with clinicians to help them to, to shift to this new way of thinking about personality disorder. And the people who developed the, this, these new systems, really, you know, one of the hopes, particularly for the ICD-11, was that it would diminish stigma because essentially you'd have this spectrum that kind of, you know, blended into normality and that people would be less, you know, reluctant to make a personality disorder diagnosis because you could say, look, someone's got mild personality difficulties and just stop at that, you know, which people know what that means. You know, you know, if you've got a friend who's got a difficult personality and you might not be able to describe the detail of what's difficult about it, but people know what, you know, interpersonal difficulties are. Or they have friends who've never been able to set goals or have a stable sense of themselves and, you know, proceed in life, never been able to establish intimate relationships, you know, and they know that those people have difficulties. And so, you know, the hope was that it would allow a more sympathetic view of people with personality disorder. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that we had this conversation because we've touched on it numerous times, but it's great to have someone with your breath walk us through that in more detail. And as you say, this is a new way of talking about personality disorders. And unfortunately, I think clinicians are going to have to not only learn this new way, but unlearn the old. So um, hopefully this is a positive step in the new direction of how to think about personality disorders. You did touch on something in terms of difficulty with some of these personalities. And I want to dive into that because we had an earlier clinician talk about borderline specifically in sort of in the old context. And we heard from quite a few listeners that they themselves have a family member or someone very close to them that was diagnosed um, with personality disorder or, you know, in the old convention still borderline, and that they found it really, really tough to deal with the, the affected family member or friend, that they found it disorienting, that they found it hurtful, that they found the spates of emotion um, created outlashings with hurtful behavior and incredibly injurious words. And what we heard from our side is, you know, hosting these conversations was um, the affected person, but also the pool of people around them that often didn't express uh, a deep sympathy towards the affected person. So what are your thoughts and what words would you share to people who may know someone who um, has been diagnosed or they, th they just think, as you say, this person just has a very difficult personality and they suspect there might be something deeper. What are some of your thoughts and wisdom on how to view this person and maybe what sorts of things they can do? So borderline personality disorder, and, you know, I, I still think it's okay to use that term, is ranks among the severe mental disorders. You know, this is one of the problems, I think, getting people to take it seriously because what you've just mentioned uh, is is a very common experience. Uh, families with a member with borderline personality disorder often are very distressed. We've actually, we're just publishing some work now showing that the people who care for a young person with borderline personality disorder have worse experiences than even caring for someone with a psychotic disorder like schizophrenia. 
So, and in fact, among all the patient groups, we published some other work uh, more recently as well, showing that um, among all patient groups, actually the families of people with borderline personality disorder probably suffer the most. Um, now, uh, that also matches the suffering of the individual who has borderline personality disorder. This is a very distressing, very severe problem that is associated with a myriad of other difficulties and the outcome for people with borderline personality disorder in life is often very poor. So, you know, it needs to be taken seriously. And, you know, in my lifetime as a psychiatrist, it wasn't. And uh, um, people were dismissed with the disorder, that they were just attention seeking, that they were just manipulative, you know, other really disgraceful descriptions were used for people with borderline personality disorder. And also the families were dismissed as well um, because they were often blamed. Borderline personality disorder is the last of the mental disorders where it's seen as acceptable to just blame the family for all the problems that that person has. Um, and sometimes families are involved in the development of the disorder, not always, but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily their fault. It, often these problems cluster in families. Borderline personality disorder is actually a highly heritable disorder. It's more heritable than depression. And, and so the experience of borderline personality disorder is extraordinarily painful for the individual who has it. You know, this inability to regulate emotions, a very esteemed colleague uh, in the United States described this as like uh, being an emotional burns victim. You know, it's like having no skin and that there's no defence, you know, to, to the kind of emotional ups and downs of daily life. That small things can trigger you know, immensely difficult outbursts. And sometimes that is felt as internal anguish. Sometimes it's expressed as aggression. That's why, you know, people have the experience of saying something that they didn't, that they thought was innocuous and having, you know, incurring the wrath of somebody with borderline personality disorder. The other experience that's very painful is the kind of emptiness, the lack of sense of self. And that's a really painful and difficult way to proceed in life, to not have any sense of who you are, of your goals, values, direction, that even you're the same person in different situations with different people, this kind of floating kind of sense of self. And then, of course, there's the self-harm that often accompanies borderline personality disorder. That self-harm is a common feature. It's often used to regulate emotions or to punish the, for the individual to punish themselves. Um, when you do studies asking people why do they hurt themselves, actually, uh, a study we published a number of years ago, we actually just asked an open-ended question. And actually, the largest group said, I don't know why. The next group said to manage my emotions, and the one after that said to punish myself. If you give people a kind of a forced choice, they'll usually say, the majority will say emotion, you know, controlling their emotions. And um, uh, many people will say to punish myself many will say both. What they're not doing it for is to attract attention, to gain care, all these other kind of things that are often ascribed to them. And you've got to think about it from the perspective of someone with BPD, um, cutting yourself and, you know, going into an emergency department is almost always a negative experience. And, you know, this is, as I said, the definition of personality disorder. You know, you cut yourself, you go in expecting care, you often get the opposite and yet you go back again, you know, uh, and, and this is, a, you know, a form of just self-defeating behaviour. And, and so, you know, the experience of borderline personality disorder is, is incredibly painful and often people come to the conclusion later in life that dealing with people is too difficult and they tend to kind of withdraw. Uh, and so you often find that people with, you know, by middle age... Quite a lot of people with borderline personality disorder decide that it's just too difficult and, and you know, they tend to kind of avoid relationships uh, and they can often live quite isolated and lonely and painful lives. And we also know that one of the long-term consequences, apart from long-term relationship problems, is, is also vocational problems. And so actually 
the disability support pension and unemployment benefits are oversubscribed with people with borderline personality disorder. And we know that you're even having any features of borderline personality disorder in your teenage years will actually predict your educational and occupational outcome decades later down the track. Uh, and in fact, this is a real focus of the program that, that um, uh, I run at Origin, that actually we have recognised that it's not, you know, suicide is an important outcome, uh, that, you know, around about 8% of people with BPD will suicide, which is similar to that to for schizophrenia. And premature mortality in borderline personality disorder is very high, not just from suicide, but actually because of all the other lifestyle factors associated with that, drug and alcohol use, smoking, various, you know, poor health care because they have difficult relationships with GPs and physicians and, you know, other people, physios, whatever. And so there are health and mortality issues, but also that one of the critical issues is this long-term interpersonal and vocational dysfunction. And so actually people often lose sight of the ball, you know, when, when people are treating people with borderline personality disorder. They focus a lot on the self-harm and they focus on trying to control the self-harm when in fact it, it's not, it might not be life-threatening self-harm. It might be their way of managing. And what they lose sight of is this interpersonal and vocational dysfunction long-term. And if you, between adolescence and young adulthood, fall off the kind of social network and uh, vocational trains, it's very hard to re-establish those later in life. And I don't need to be doom and gloom because, as I said, treatment is effective. But I, I think it's incredibly important to underscore that this is a major public health problem in, in Australia and internationally, and it's under-recognised and uh, we underdo our, our response to this across the health system. You were asking me, and I've kind of veered away from talking about the experience of, of families as well. And as I suggested at the start, that families really suffer and have high levels of distress, uh, burnout. They really find caring for someone with BPD very difficult, and they often come up against blame and stigma in the mental health system. And so, you know, it is important not only to have programs for helping people with borderline personality disorder, but that those programs should involve uh, the families of people affected as well. And ideally, these programs should really be, you know, jointly developed and designed, both with the people with BPD and also the families themselves. And it, it's these really need to focus on coping, on learning skills to interact with a young person or, or adult with borderline personality disorder. And there are a number of these programs around. We have our own at Origin, um, but there are other ones. I'm also associated with another program called Family Connections, which is available nationally. And that really teaches people basic skills for learning to interact with somebody with borderline personality disorder so as not to make the problem worse, helping them put themselves in the shoes of that individual with borderline personality disorder when they're distressed and helping them to develop communication skills so that they can reduce the amount of, of provocation and better understand what the person uh, that they're talking to is actually trying to achieve, what they want and need from uh, that family member. So this is a program that you run out of origin? So we run a, a different program. Family Connections was developed in the US. It's actually um, one that an organisation called the National Educational Alliance for Borderline Personality Disorder. Uh, you can find us at BPD Australia uh, uh, online. And that's was introduced by my um, colleague, uh, Anne Reeves, who, who sadly died uh, last year. And the National Education Alliance organisation is the body that runs that program. Uh, and if you look up the program, you can enrol in any state into a, uh, a course. It's run by family members uh, who have a young person or, or adult with borderline personality disorder. Uh, it's not run by clinicians. And uh, it's certainly a, um, a valuable uh, tool in the box. At Origin, we've, we've moved into 
uh, actually an online program that is not available yet. We're still researching it. Um, but one of the things that we found, particularly with families with a young person, is it's very difficult for them to actually travel to get into, you know, a group, particularly, you know, with young people who uh, might be dependent upon them. They often still have young families. And so we've moved to this online platform uh, developed with two of my colleagues, uh, Mario Alvarez and John Gleason. And this is a uh, moderated online social network that allows family members to join in and to support one another on an ongoing basis. And we have uh, done some pilot work and it's very acceptable. We're, we're trying to get a, a trial funded at the moment so that we can test the full model. Um, but again, this is a really promising way of interacting with family members and allows peer-to-peer -peer contact uh, so that family members can support one another. And it has expert moderators as well. So what we call family peer support workers. So people with lived experience who have extra training and can, and can support them. And also it's supported by clinicians as well. So I'm sure we'll, we'll put all this in the show notes. So any of our listeners who are eager to join a program like that can do so. But let, let's go back to an earlier problem then. If you think you've got a family member that may have a personality disorder, do you, one, need a diagnosis to join the program? And two, what if they're just a difficult person and you're telling them, hey, you know, I think you need to get some support because we're all hurting, we're all confused, we're all in pain and we don't get what you're doing. Like one moment you're amazing and the other moment you turn into someone that we barely recognize that can be completely unhinged. How do you transition this or loved one from a place of saying, you know, I think I'm fine, this is just how I am, this is how people are, through to, yeah, maybe I should go get some support. Yeah, so at the milder end of personality disorder, someone might decide this is how I am and, I, you know, I don't want to do anything about it. W once you get into the more severe end, you know, what we would call borderline personality disorder, uh, you know, encouragement of people to understand the perspective of their family members as well uh, is, is a powerful way of helping them to get into care. You know, did you realise that whenever I try to talk with you in a, you know, quiet way to... Um, try and help you along, that you end up becoming furious with me and yelling at me, and I tend to retreat and give up on helping you, and that leaves you alone. And, and trying to help them to understand the effect that they have on others uh, is sometimes a way of helping them to get into care, and particularly trying to understand the effect that this has on themselves. And so helping them to, to understand essentially that they keep doing the same thing over and over again and not get what they want. You know, I would ask them, what is it you want here? You know, what are you hoping for? And, and ask them, how is this helping you to achieve that? And, you know, would you like some help trying to achieve that? Um, so that's, I think, one way of helping people to try to understand that this is causing problems, not only for themselves, but for the family. And that while you're not blaming them for the problems, maybe some professional support might also uh, help them to achieve what they want and need in life. We had a conversation with an expert on narcissism previously, and they talked about how someone with, you know, severe narcissism, you know, if we think about it as a spectrum, can often go through phases where they just don't remember what they did or said, where they become amnesic. Does, you know, someone in that borderline, severe end of the borderline spectrum, have a similar experience and is it possible that in those conversations with someone when you when you say hey when when you did that you said all these things to me and I just I, you know those were and that person may say well I never said that is that because they're in denial because we hear that very often in the theme of these sorts of experiences or is that because they've just become they've just forgotten their minds just erase that like someone who has narcissism well, it might be that not that their mind erased it, it might be that their mind never encoded it, you know, never remembered. Because I'm sure everybody listening has had an experience of being so angry uh, or so upset that they said and did things that they regret. And some of them, they might not remember what they did. And I think that, you know, the simplest explanation here is, is not to ascribe kind of malevolence to, to this, but to actually say that, often when we become highly emotionally aroused, we're not very good at laying down new memories. And that, yes, people say all sorts of things that, that you know, they didn't mean, they regret, that they don't even remember saying, but they said them. And so I think that it's 
you know, a, a forgiving, sympathetic approach, which can be very hard to muster, uh, you know, in the face of that, can allow a conversation about, did you realise when you were upset, you said this to me, you know, that's really hurtful uh, when you say this. So I think that it, it doesn't matter whether you look at it categorically or whether you look at it dimensionally, at the extreme end, and, and narcissism, narcissism, you know, one way of looking at it is it's just toward the severe end of the spectrum. And narcissism is really a trait that is an aspect of um, severe personality disorder. And uh, that, yes, you can, you can find that you're, you end up not remembering what you said and needing to be reminded of it. And you know, it might not happen the first, second, third or fourth or even the tenth time, but you hope that at some point uh, when you keep saying the same thing, you know, giving the same feedback that this is problematic, that somebody might be motivated to get some help. But the problem is that not everybody uh, has that level of reflection. And, you know, one of, the, one of the problems with personality disorder, one of the fundamental difficulties is in severe personality disorder is not having the mechanisms to reflect on oneself. And, and so, you know, the very nature of the disorder kind of mitigates against actually getting help. And then, of course, you know, you might get dragged into the GP's, you know, my child or, you know, needs help or I've been told I need to come here and get some help. But actually the very disorder itself makes it very difficult for communication about, you know, getting help. Um, they might even get cross at the receptionist when they come in and not get past first base to get even get into, you know, see the doctor. They might, you know, people get... Uh, banned from practices and told not to come back or, or whatever. So uh, it is a challenging problem to get somebody with more severe personality disorder to see that, that they need some help. That said, most people with severe personality disorder will acknowledge that their lives are unhappy and often unrewarding and that they would like things to be different. And I guess my approach would be to say, is this the way you want your life to be? And if you don't, then maybe some help is, is a good idea. That said, trying to get people into help is tremendously difficult in the health system. Um, we haven't even got on to talking very much about stigma and discrimination. But for me, the biggest barrier in caring for people with personality disorder is not having treatments. We've got treatments. We know things that are effective. The biggest barrier is actually the pervasive discrimination in the health system against people with personality disorder. To come back to your comment earlier, they are seen as bad, not unwell. And a kind of a, a malevolence is ascribed to them that just doesn't get borne out by any, any rational understanding of personality disorder. But they, particularly in the health system, are heavily discriminated against. And even if they get into the health system, you know, there's this idea of the soft bigotry of low expectations, you know, that, that unlike people with depression, we don't expect them to get, you know, to fully recover. We think if we can do a bit, you know, then that's okay. But actually, we should have the expectation that people with personality disorder should have access to the health system and that they should get treatment and that our aim should be for them to thrive in life. And these things are possible. And they might not be all done through traditional forms of psychotherapy. So as I said, we're very focused on vocational outcomes, educational and employment outcomes. Uh, and there is evidence to show that actually getting a job is therapeutic. And so actually helping people to make that transition from childhood through to adulthood and to stay on the, on the kind of train as, as it goes into later life is incredibly important. Helping people to look after themselves better. As I said to you, people with borderline personality disorder die two decades younger than the rest of the population. Now that's not because of the disorder necessarily, it's nothing innate to the disorder. It's often associated with things like smoking, poor health care. You know, if you get into an argument with your doctor every time you go and see them, of course you're not gonna get the best health care. Even in young people with um, borderline personality disorder, the mean age of onset of smoking is 12 and of people in their teens and 20s, two thirds of them smoke daily. 
Uh, now, uh, I don't know whether you've seen the national statistics, they just came out again recently. I think the national smoking rate among young people is about 9% at the moment. So, you know, the, the people who are really, you know, going to live shorter lives are people with these kinds of difficulties who smoke and, you know, uh, use uh, illicit drugs in a dangerous way uh, at rates much higher than the rest of the population, have much more problems with alcohol as well. Um, and all these things are going to take their toll. Um, they're, they're more prone to be risk takers uh, in a dangerous way. And so all these things lead to premature death. And we're, you know, again, we're very interested in this, this problem because, in fact, there's, you know, tremendous health gains to be made by being able to reduce these, you know, really severe outcomes. And so if only we could get our colleagues outside of personality disorder, let alone the rest of the health system, to better understand personality disorder so that they could better engage with this group and, um, and to prevent all this mortality and morbidity that comes about because of, uh, of having personality disorder. I would like to come to treatment because we've touched on that a couple of times. What are the options out there and what does the science say about the effectiveness? Uh, so the options out there are relatively limited in the community, which is, uh, you know, and, and I think one of the difficulties of a you know podcast like this is that you set up the expectation, you know, that you should go and get treatment and people often run into brick walls. And, and actually there is evidence uh, from colleagues of mine uh, who I collaborate with in Sydney that, that actually awareness raising can actually uh, raise the suicide rate because you set up expectations that, people are going to get help and just push them into a, a broken system. Uh, so I do want to kind of add that caveat, but I don't want to sound negative about treatment because treatment is very effective. So um, what we think of as treatment, I guess the evidence has really changed. You know, traditionally, and many people will tell you that the treatment for borderline personality disorder is having individual psychotherapy. That is sitting down in a room, talking one-on-one -on -one with people. And there are numerous uh, brand name psychotherapies for borderline personality disorder. I'm sure you've heard of dialectical behavior therapy or mentalization based therapy. Um, we do a treatment called cognitive analytic therapy. Uh, they all essentially have different theories and techniques, but they all kind of get to the same place in the end. And, and I, I describe them as like laundry powders. You know, they all get your clothes clean, but they, they make different claims on the pack. And we know that those therapies are better than just usual care in the community. And usual care, though, can sometimes be terrible care, of course. You know, people get harmed by the health system uh, in borderline personality disorder in a way that uh, doesn't happen with other mental health problems. So the, the psychotherapies definitely work, but they really have a place in the system. They're not the whole, they shouldn't be the whole system. And I think what's paralyzing for people, for clinicians generally, is they think they diagnose somebody with borderline personality disorder and they say, well, I've got to get them into a psychotherapy program. And these psychotherapy programs are mostly long and intensive and have very few places. The, as I said to you, the, the prevalence of personality disorder is about 10%, but the prevalence of borderline personality disorder in young people is about 3%, uh, and it tapers off to just above 1% in the adult community. And if you think of trying to get 1% of Australians in, into the office of a, a psychotherapist, that's a lot of people. And there just aren't that number of people. And because of, you know, the stigma and discrimination toward this patient group, many clinicians won't take on people with uh, borderline personality disorder. In fact, they actively avoid them. So I think what we need to recognise is there is more to treatment than just individual psychotherapy. And there are a number of studies, including one that we've done ourselves, that show that, that actually high quality care is as effective as some of these brand name psychotherapies. Now, they often involve a sort of therapy component in our high quality care program. It involves, uh, it involves problem solving. They, it can in, you know, involve some sort of quasi psychotherapy, but it's usually not an intensive psychotherapy that involves a lot of training. And we know that those programs that attend to the needs of people with personality disorder, provide some structure, provide some emotional containment and are predictable 
and particularly are non-reactive, you know, that don't rise to the provocations uh, when somebody gets angry that, that actually allow you to have a conversation. Those programs are also very effective. Now, that's more achievable than providing individual psychotherapy. Our most recent trial, which we're, we're just about to submit for publication, actually showed that a, an early intervention that involved no individual psychotherapy whatsoever was as effective as intervention that included individual psychotherapy. And so we're hoping that helps progress the field to recognise that actually it's probably the system of care, having a model of borderline personality disorder, responding to crises, treating depression if they've got depression or anxiety if they've got anxiety, attending to the whole range of problems, attending to their physical, sexual, reproductive health, all these kinds of things actually, and, and particularly attending to their vocational outcomes, uh, that attending to these things probably is the more powerful component of treatment. Now, we're not quite sure as a result of this trial what the place of individual psychotherapy is. I'm confident it does have a place, uh, but it might well be that, that these more generalist skills can be much more easily taught you know, across the system and, and implemented across the system than these uh, individual psychotherapies that often take years to train in. And so the way I look at it is treatment really should be a kind of cascading series of skills ranging from relatively simple skills uh, that should be available to everybody to these highly specialised individual psychotherapy skills that would be available to actually just a few people. And <clears throat> there's no doubt that some people need individual psychotherapy. And I've seen, I couldn't tell you how many thousands of patients who benefited from individual psychotherapy. I, I'm, you know, quite confident of that. But what, you know, finding the place of this in the health system, I think is our current challenge. And I think that's a controversial issue because psychotherapists are often quite defensive of their territory, you know, and I guess like, you know, surgeons like operating, psychotherapists like doing therapy, you know, um, and just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's necessarily the first thing that you should do. And so I want to be clear, I'm not anti-therapy at all, um, but I think we need to think about responses other than individual psychotherapy. And that way we don't set up unrealistic expectations. I can't tell you the number of calls and emails I get every week both nationally and internationally, uh, saying, my young person has borderline personality disorder, how can I get some help? And, you know, depending on where they are, it's often heartbreaking to say to them, actually, you know, I don't know of any services in your area that can offer that. Or worse still, these services are actually pretty hostile to people with uh, personality disorder. So my advice would be, no treatment is better than bad treatment. You know, that's the worst case scenario. What we, you know, what we know is that the clinicians can do good work if they're properly supported to help people with borderline personality disorder. So, you know, this no psychotherapy intervention, one of the versions of it took place actually in a headspace centre. And, you know, we've got 140 of them nationally. And I think that we can uh, work through platforms like Headspace for young people, and now there's going to be a kind of uh, equivalent for adults, uh, we can work through centres like that to help to provide basic skills for people to be able to, I think, manage the majority of people with personality disorder. One of the problems with individual psychotherapy programs is that they expect you to adhere to quite rigid rules that by, by its nature, personality disorder makes it hard to adhere to. So some people can jump through all the hoops and get into programs. And those people are often labelled as motivated. You know, and the people who don't get in are labelled as unmotivated. And I think that's an unfair division. I think that many of those people who are so-called unmotivated people, it's just not, not the right program for them. It's like not providing wheelchair access to a building. You know, if you require somebody to turn up at exactly the same time every week on public transport and, you know, to be reliable and in a reflective kind of uh, state to be able to come into their uh, psychotherapy session, that's a recipe for things failing in many people with 
severe personality disorder. Some people can do it and, and they no doubt benefit. But I'm thinking of a system of care for everybody, including the people who only ever brush up against, you know, emergency departments or GPs in times of crisis. You know, what can we do for those people? Um, because actually they're the people who are often at most risk of harmful outcomes. So I think of it as a public health problem that needs this cascading series of responses that, as we call it, staged, you know, proportional to the problems that they have uh, and that are flexible and responsive to those problems and can meet them where they are rather than trying to fit them into the system to actually fit the system to them uh, so that we have workable treatments. Hopefully the work that you're doing, um, the work uh, of the rest of your team and uh, the education that you provide us today takes us one step closer to ameliorating and improving someone's condition or maybe uh, a friend or family member. So thank you so much for your time today. You're very welcome and thanks for your interest in the topic. Okay, well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Professor Andrew Channon. You can find us at talklink.com.au. Keep well and catch you next time.